0: got your Bibles, please open them up to, I almost said Luke, but we're not in Luke anymore. Please open them up to Jeremiah chapter 23. Our ushers are bringing note sheets and pencils by, also if you need the Word of God, if you need a Bible, so that you can follow along with us as we study together, please raise your hand and our gentlemen would be happy to bring a Bible to your seat so that you would have that there with you. Paul was mentioning um, just our, our desire to see this national crisis in our country of all these abortions to see that changed, and uh, we rejoice that the, the news that we got this week that in Iowa they just passed a legislation that uh, is, as of course, being immediately appealed, but a legislation that would make it illegal to uh, practice abortion on any fetus that has a heartbeat, which would be an incredible, incredible. Victory for life. Um, So be praying that our brothers and sisters in Iowa who've been praying through that, who've been supporting uh, those who stand for that difficult bill, uh, that they would be able to rally enough support that that will not be defeated in the courts. Um, Life is precious to God. All life is precious and holy to Him. Uh, Life is good because God made man and woman in His image. And so we honor all human life and are grateful for the chance to stand in support of those. Um, who are in need of support and who are more vulnerable than those who don't even have a voice for themselves, our unborn children. So keep praying for those causes. There's been a lot of anxiety in recent years regarding the kinds of people who've been put into public office in our great nation and also the kinds of legislation those people are trying to pass. There are people on both the conservative and liberal sides of the aisle who are unhappy with the way that our government is being run and about the way that politics are clashing against the biblical values that we care so deeply about. The Bible does give us some specific instructions in that regard. Christians are told to pray for those who rule over us in 1 Timothy 2, that we are to think about these men and women and we are to lift them up before the Lord, that God might give them wisdom, that God might soften their hearts to the things of truth, that they might not just rule on the whims of people, but they would rule according to the desires of God revealed to us in Scripture. Romans 13.1 reminds us that God sovereignly, in His perfect power, allows those who serve in government to attain to their positions. So whether we approve of them or not, we should honor the role that they play in our lives the best that we can. Jeremiah 29.7 tells the exiled Israelites, who have been scattered to different nations, that no matter where they land, no matter what place they move to, no matter what culture they find themselves living in, that they are to seek the well-being of the land that they call their home. And so we are to always ask the Lord God to bless our nation and to bless our people and to help them to be wiser and to help them do what is righteous and good. We are blessed, in fact, to live in a country where we can at least cast a vote. We have a say. And it is our duty as followers of Christ to care about other people to take our faith with us into the voting places, to share our values by casting our ballot for for politicians and laws that are more likely to please our Lord and coincide with His will. That is a freedom that we must exercise as believers. But when it boils down to it, there's only so much that we can do to affect the earthly governments that rule over us. However, there is another form of leadership that we have much more influence on. The people who we allow to lead the church of God. With all the attention that is given to the elected officials who are leading our local and federal governments, we need to be careful to give ample thought to the leaders that God has put directly over His own people to guide our discipleship and to govern our churches. And so I'm going to ask you today to turn with me to Jeremiah 23. We're going to read a passage of Scripture that reminds us that when the leaders of God's people don't shepherd well, Bad things are tend to, tend to happen. The Lord called uh, the prophet Jeremiah to serve at a very young age. And he responded to that calling by obeying the Lord and was given the opportunity to preach his message of truth for over 40 years. Those 40 years were a pivotal ones in the history of God's people. During his prophetic ministry, the southern kingdom of Judah fell further and further away from the Lord God and from the commandments that they had covenanted with God to live according to until God decided to allow the unbelieving empire of Babylon to conquer Judah, to wake them up and to help them to realize that they needed to obey their God, to live in right order with the one who had saved them from slavery. Judah resisted this conquering of Babylon even though Jeremiah the prophet had made it abundantly clear to them that this was the result of their disobedience to God's law. They resisted it. They wanted their freedom and they kept pushing back against this new people that had come and taken them over. Eventually, because of their stubbornness and their resistance, the Babylonians had had enough of their fighting in Jerusalem, God's holy city, and the temple whereby the Israelites offered their praise and sacrifice to God were destroyed by Babylonian armies. As we read in verses 1 through 4, a major factor in the decline of Judah was the failure of its leaders to honor God in the way that they governed God's people. And so we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful. Multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. There is a certain amount of courage that is required for a person to serve faithfully in the role of prophet. Because prophets deliver the words of God To man, And man doesn't always want to hear what God has to say to him. Because of the sinful nature that we are each born with, we have a natural tendency to resist what is beautiful and good, what is righteous and holy. We like to decide for ourselves what is good or bad. So when a prophet comes and tells us the definitive word of God, man's heart has a tendency to resist that. Jeremiah knew that firsthand. He experienced it in his own life. During his decades of service, he was largely hated by his own people because of the difficult truths that he had to confront them with. Only two people in the 40-year span that Jeremiah minister, only two people are recorded as having been favorable to him. One was Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, who helped him to write down the prophecies of the Lord, and the other was a eunuch in the service of the king. Everyone else rejected Jeremiah. They persecuted him. They ridiculed him to the point where he even questioned God's calling on his life at one point. Despite the opposition that he knew he would face, Jeremiah is not holding back in these passages that we're reading and studying today. In these verses of Scripture, he is telling the truth to the people. He is being an honest prophet. No matter how badly the truth hurts, a prophet of God is to tell the people exactly the words that he gives to them. And his preaching definitely did not help him win any popularity polls. As he shared these words about the leadership in Jeremiah, suddenly the most powerful and influential people in Israel had it out to get him. He faced incredible opposition to his ministry. He was plotted against by his own hometown. He was thrown into a muddy cistern for a period of time. He was placed in stocks and marched out in front of the people to be a laughing stock. He was ridiculed. Some even plotted to take his life. That suffering came because Jeremiah spoke against sin, especially when it was being committed by the very people who were appointed to lead God's people away from sin, from the leaders of the land, those that we refer to here as shepherds. In the Old Testament, these leaders were primarily broken down into three positions. Some of the leaders were prophets. People who were gifted with the specific messages that God wanted His people to hear. They were tasked with the difficult job of bringing God's Word to the people of Israel. And this was a difficult, dangerous, and weighty task because they were entrusted with the oracles of God Himself. They must be faithful to those messages. When most people think of, of prophets, they think of men who tell the future but that was only a small portion of what God used his prophets in the Old Testament to do. Their primary function was not foretelling, telling the future, it was forthtelling, bringing forth the things of God that he had revealed to his people that many of them, through neglect or through distraction or because of their rebellious hearts, had put to the side and began to ignore. These prophets were tasked with bringing the attention of the people back to the God that they were supposed to love, that they had covenanted and committed to serve with their lives. God had, through Moses, promised to be their people as they would be his God, or to be their God as they would be his people. And so these prophets had a very, very difficult task, and their closeness to God, the fact that He spoke with them, and the fact that they had to keep themselves holy and set apart and pure meant that they often felt alienated from the common people in Israel. Their closeness to God resulted in distance between them and their fellow Israelites. Though the sincere prophets of God spoke the truth, whether or not people listened, there were many others who liked to call themselves prophets, who would either make up things that God never spoke to them and proclaimed them to the people so that others would think of them as influential and powerful, or they would take the words that God get, did give to them and twist them or only tell part of the message out of fear of the people. So that was the first, uh, the first station of leadership in Israel was to serve as a prophet. Some were also called to serve as priests. The priests were always members of the tribe of Levi. Specifically, the priests that serve in the temple were from the line of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. Moses and Aaron, who formed that first dynamic duo of leadership in Israel. Moses was the prophet, the one who brought from the Lord the words of truth and gave them to the people, whereas Aaron served as the other direction. He took the needs of the people in their worship and he gave them up to God as priests. That's the two complementary functions of the prophet and the priest. Their prayers, their offerings, uh, their gifts to the Lord were delivered to God through the work of the priests in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. The priests were to take special care to make sure that the people of God were worshiping Him in appropriate ways. God desires our worship. Man has a tendency though to worship the Lord God in wrong ways, in ways that Do not honor him properly. And so God has to direct us in instruction and give us instruction in the ways that we are to honor him properly. The priests were to help the people in that regard. They handled the offerings that were brought into the temple. They needed to be men of integrity because a lot of resources and money would come through the temple and they had to take good care of it and keep careful track of those funds so that they were not squandered or stolen or wasted. They had the responsibility also of judging important matters of righteousness in the land among the people. So they often acted as intermediaries when there was conflict. They interpreted the scripture for the people who needed to understand it so they could live according to the law of Moses. So we have prophets, we have priests, and there's a third uh, third leadership position that Israel uh, typically relied on in the Old Testament, and that was the role of king. Though God the Father was intent to serve as the king over his chosen nation, their affinity for the patterns of the world, their desire to be more like their neighbors, like the other nations that surrounded them, caused them to cry out to God and ask him to provide for them an earthly king, a human being who would reign on a physical throne rather than trusting God to reign on the spiritual throne upon which he sits in the heavenly realms. These men were given to the people Though God was reluctant at first, he knew that he would be a better king than these men would be, and he warned them that their desire for these earthly kings would be regretted later. But he gave them what they consistently asked for, and these men were to protect the nation. They were to make difficult decisions on how Israel interacted with other countries. Foreign policy was, by and large, their responsibility. If Israel went to war, the king was expected to direct their armies with wisdom. He was to seek the Lord for guidance upon the direction where the the nation was supposed to go. And the laws of the land, of course, fell under the jurisdiction of the king. And those who broke the law were to experience his wrath as he enforced those laws of Moses. Prophet, priest, king. These three leadership roles are referred to here collectively in this passage of Jeremiah as the shepherds of God's people. Sadly, the people who filled these three offices often fell short of their callings. If you want more information on this, we're, we're going to handle a smaller passage because of time today. But in your devotions this week, if you want to hear more, you can go and read the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, will get into more detail about the specific ways uh, that Israel's leaders, these three roles, were failing the people of God. Uh, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. They, they ministered right about the same times. But today we're going to focus on these four four verses of Scripture. Rather than protect the sheep of Israel, these shepherds, according to Jeremiah the prophet, destroyed them. We, We think about this illustration, this idea that God's people are often referred to as His sheep. That was not in any way to belittle them or to mock them. It was simply to give them a right understanding of their station in the creation that God has made that God is over them as a good and loving shepherd, that it is his responsibility to take care of them and to guide them and to protect them from threats. And these prophets, priests, and kings, who were in many ways called to work alongside, alongside God, to be under shepherds, to help protect these individuals, these ones that he loved so dearly, these Israelites, fell short of their task. Rather than protect them, they used the people for their own benefit. And we've seen politicians in our own land do something similar, where on the premise of serving the people, they are elected to office, and then they use that station instead to fill their own pockets with profits and to make themselves wealthy. That is exactly what the shepherds in Jeremiah's day were doing. They were like a shearer, shearing the the wool off the sheep. They were leaving the people of Israel bare. And they were slaughtering them for meat. In, In other words, they were allowing the people of Israel to be put in such vulnerable positions that they were not taken care of. The poor were dying hungry. They were being overlooked and neglected. The, The vulnerable in society were not being cared for the way that they were called to be cared for. So rather than protect the sheep of Israel, the shepherds destroyed those sheep. Rather than keep the flock together, the shepherds scattered the flock. Because they did not protect the people by calling out their sin and correcting them to walk in the ways of the Lord, Israel began to fight amongst themselves. There was division amongst God's people because the word of God, though it stings us, though it calls out what is wrong in us, is there to correct us. It is like medicine to our sinful hearts so that we might live peaceably with God and then by right consequence also live peaceably with one another as His people. But these shepherds, these prophet priests and kings, we're living in such a way that the people of Israel were scattered. Their disobedience had caused God's wrath to come upon the nation. Babylon had defeated them and they were pushed to the corners of the world. Why does God let people lead if this kind of thing is going to happen? If the result of human beings taking positions of leadership is that the nations are scattered and the people are destroyed and they are not taken care of the way they are, why would God choose to allow men to lead his nations? To understand the answer to that question, we need to come to terms with the fact that God does not need us to lead, but he is pleased to appoint leaders amongst those whom he has created. It it makes God happy to bring alongside these humans, even though they are flawed, even though they often do things wrong, God desires to grow us, to refine us, to sanctify us by calling us into difficult service that we must learn to trust in Him in order to accomplish well. How many mothers do we have in our sanctuary today? Mothers who likely are often called upon to make food for the family, to get into the kitchen and to cook and to do things. Not that only moms cook, okay, but I'm just focusing on moms right now because I've been blessed by the, the cooking. by My mother and my children have been blessed by my wife's cooking. Now, you are probably the most proficient person in your house at making a meal. But don't you, from time to time, take your little ones by the hand and bring them into the kitchen and put them on a stool, put a little apron around them and let them measure out the flour and let them add seasonings and teach them how to bring that water to boil and teach them to respect the flame of the stovetop. You allow them to be a part of that process, though their inclusion in it will more than likely result in a dinner that is not quite as nice to eat how many of you have been forced to choke down something that was not delicious for the sake of your fr- child's fragile heart <laughs> some of your kids can cook very well if you ever watch master chef junior or something i don't know how those little kids cook that way but the reason a mother does that a reason the mother or a father who cooks brings that child into the kitchen is because They desire better for their child. They want to train them up. They don't have the skills to do the job on their own. But if they will come and enter into that relationship, that closeness with mom or with dad, and they'll take that task upon themselves to help and then to eventually do the task on their own, then they will grow by that knowledge. And so God brings broken, incomplete men into positions of leadership so that they will hopefully learn to trust in him and to rely on his guidance and sometimes they will mess up dinner but hopefully those mistakes and those faults will teach them all the more to trust in the guidance and the leader of the one who is who is teaching them god blesses us by calling us to positions of leadership especially since as we will see shortly if we have any chance of leading well we'll have no choice but to rely heavily on god himself and to trust in His wisdom to guide us through that process of being good shepherds. To serve God as a leader is to go beyond what we are naturally capable of doing. And therefore, it increases the need that we have to depend on God and to remain close to Him. And this is why, if you look through the pattern of Scripture, God doesn't need to choose gifted men to lead. That's not the point, When God brings someone up to be a leader, He is not showing the rest of the world who is most holy among them. He often chooses the person who is out of their league, the person who is not skilled or trained or equipped to do the thing that God has called them to do. And He does that specifically so that when the task gets done well through that flawed man or woman, God will receive the glory for it. God wants to bring people to positions where they must learn to trust in Him so that He can show the world what He can do through an imperfect person. Now we're going to spend two Sundays looking over the texts that show the biblical requirements to serve as a leader in God's church. And so we're not going to get into all those this morning. Nearly every requirement that we're going to find when we get to that point in our series here on, on biblical leadership, nearly every requirement is linked to one's character and devotion to God. When you look at the requirements to serve as an elder or as a deacon, rather than seeing a list of skills or experiences that they must have, rather than a certain amount of years that they have to serve, God again and again points to the heart of the individual. Will this man, regardless of how intelligent he is, regardless of how skilled or experienced he is, will this person turn to me? every time they don't have the answer. The heart of the man is the most important thing when it comes to figuring out who can lead in God's church. I want you to look again at verse four that we looked at just a second ago where the Lord God, through the prophet Jeremiah, makes a promise. And there's some foretelling going on here. He's pointing forward to the future when he says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. God does not intend to allow this poor leadership to continue on forever. He points forward to a day when He will rise up leaders among His people who will bless the people with care and with right shepherding. And we observe here right away in verse 4 that these leaders are going to be appointed by God. He is the one who will raise them up. He is the one that will set these shepherds over his people whom he loves so much. And so that tells us something right away. That tells us that the shepherds that God uses to lead his church are not just men who simply take it upon themselves. They're not just men who are just naturally born leaders and they see a gap and they plug the hole and they fill it up and they they go and they lead because that's what they're made to do. God is the one Appoints leaders in his church. They are appointed for a holy work. Those who fulfill the biblical roles of leadership should do so in response to a calling that God places upon their life. Not from some desire for power, not for a hunger for recognition amongst their peers, not for some ambition to prove themselves to be great at preaching or organizing or, or, or planting churches. Rather, God uses people that he calls to the task. And those who serve as biblical leaders should sense that the Lord is drawing them into such a service. As a church, when we invite the congregation to nominate and affirm men to serve in leadership capacities, whether that be elder or in the near future, we're going to be, uh, uh, we're going to be looking to um, nominate deacons. We need to be cautious about determining who those people should be. Is our nomination or affirmation based on the scriptural guidelines that are laid down for us in this book? Because God gave those guidelines to us. So if we follow the leading of this book, then God is the one making the decision on who should serve among us. We're simply facilitating that fact. We must be careful not to nominate or affirm people simply because we like them or because they have been here at our church the longest. Or because we suspect that they're successful in the business world or in the secular secular arena, we must consider their love for the Lord. A man who has been a successful football coach does not necessarily make a good pastor. A man who has been a wealthy CEO of a company and has grown it up to profitability does not necessarily make a good pastor. An individual who has been a general and has directed armies may have some great skills of leadership and organization. They might be able to direct and point and have people respond to them, but that does not necessarily make them a good pastor. Our standards for leaderships must be God's standards for leaderships, not Fortune 500s. This scripture helps us to see who should lead, and it also helps us to to see how they should lead. Just as God appoints men to lead, so too does He define the offices and the responsibilities that they will hold. We've looked already at the three major types of leaders that God employed under the old covenant economy. And in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, whereby we are drawn together by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, God is pleased to use two primary offices in the leading of His church. The first of which is elders. Now there are several terms that are are used more or less interchangeably in the New Testament to describe one role. Those terms are elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, presbyter. You might hear all of these terms used in description of some form of leadership over God, but the way that they are used in Scripture does not seem to indicate that they are several different offices so much as they are one office with several different facets. We will examine those titles more closely in the coming weeks and look at how each of them helps to round out our understanding of the shepherding office. The responsibilities that God has given to the elders of His church are many, but they can be distilled down to their very core to two important emphases that has to dominate the heart and the mind of an elder. And that is that the elder must commit themselves to shepherd the flock by prayer and by biblical instruction. Those who are called to lead His men and His women in the church must be people of prayer, meaning they must be seeking the Lord God, they must lead the congregation in prayer, but they must also be praying when no one is looking. They must be seeking the Lord out all throughout the day, lifting up the congregation to the Lord God, advocating on their behalf, praying for the wisdom they need to properly lead these men and women as they fulfill the role of elder. And they also must be dedicated to the teaching of the Word of God because this is the standard by which the church is to worship the Lord. If we are to lead well, then this standard must be our standard as elders. Teaching that word is an important skill. Of all the character qualities, amongst all those character qualities we're going to look at that show what kind of a person should be leading, there is one skill among them that is resoundingly important. That skill is the ability to communicate and teach, not just any concept, not just any material, but the Word of God specifically. That an elder must be theologically ready to help his people to grow into greater maturity in faith. And so these elders are to guide. They are to direct the people where to go and how to serve the Lord God. To help them take right steps so that we'll not veer off the path of righteousness. They are there to protect. To hedge in the congregation against any false teaching or any corrupt doctrine that might try to work its way in to the body of Christ, to protect them from their own sinful tendencies, to help them to grow in righteousness and holiness so that God's church will be a place of love and not a place of conflict. They are to mature other believers, to help them to step up in righteousness and to become more steady in the things they know and the ways that they serve. They are to help to equip them to do the work of ministry and to bless others with opportunities to let those skills be put to good use. And they are to intercede to come in between the enemy and the temptations of this world and the people of the congregation, to pray over them, to pray for their healing and for their well-being, to pray for good presence of mind and for greater faith in their people. So that is the first biblical office that we're going to be studying in detail in the weeks to come, the office of elder. The second biblical office is is an office that in, in truth our church has largely neglected since its inception and that is the office of deacons. In the very early stages of the church it quickly became apparent that the men the men who were set aside to teach the word of God and to blanket the people in prayer could not do those specific jobs very well if they were always expected to handle many of the other important and necessary functions of the church they needed help the apostles needed support The elders of the church needed an infrastructure. They needed men of godly character to come alongside them and do some of the things that would allow them to be freed up to pray and to study the word and to equip their people in following it. And so in the book of Acts chapter 6, the office of deacon is established whereby godly men filled with the Spirit would be set aside specifically to do those other works that would often take the the elders away from preaching and from prayer. The biblical deacon was formed to help meet the physical needs of the congregation who formed the local church. And so they are there to serve, to help the people live out those one another commandments as we are called throughout the New Testament in beautiful ways, by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James and others to love one another and to care for one another and to minister to one another's needs and to provide for those who are weak and who who cannot provide for themselves. The deacons are specifically set aside to help in facilitating that loving of one another. The deacons are there to provide mercy for those who need it. There will always be sick amongst us. There will not be a season in the church where there are none who are sick, where there are none who are hurting, where there are none who are struggling financially, and so the church is there to be a support and to guide and to help and to provide for the needs of those whom we love. They're there to faithfully use the resources of the church. When we take up that offering early, we do it reverently. We know that those are monies given to the worship of God. And we need men who have integrity, who will keep a sharp eye on those resources and who will make sure that they are distributed in a way that glorifies the Lord and strengthens the congregation. And they are there to provide support to the elders, to be accountability to them, to offer them wisdom and support, and to also offer them relief so that they can do the difficult tasks that elders are specifically required to do. These are two complementary offices. The elder and the deacon are to work hand in hand. And that is why we see Paul write in Philippians 1.1, where he addresses this letter to the church in Philippi, and he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, remember, overseer is a synonym for elder, the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are these two specific roles that we are going to work hard to understand in the next few weeks. We're going to allow the scripture to speak to us in these matters and to instruct us so that we will not consider these, these offices wrongly. There are some other functions in the church that we might try to get to later on. You might ask, what about apostles? What about prophets? What about priests? I think because of time we're going to look at those on a different Sunday morning. For the rest of the time that we have today, because we still want to enjoy the blessing of God's table, I want us to examine, just with the time we have left, some general principles on leadership that come from the Lord's Word. To know how God wants His people to lead, we cannot just examine leadership in the secular world and then import all of their ever-changing ideas and practices into the church. That would cause the church a great deal of unrest and instability. There are a lot of theories on good leadership in the world. There's a lot of things that might work effectively in the arena of business, but they are constantly changing and morphing and competing with one another. The way that God wants to lead His church has been constant since the church was formed. And we would do well to not lose faith in the direction that God has given to us. Rather than letting men lead us, let the Scripture lead our church. May it be the foundation of what good leadership should be for us. And so the first that I want to mention is that that the Scripture describes to us leadership in such a way that we understand biblical leadership is stewardship, not ownership. And this is in your notes if you want to write it down. God's church belongs to God, doesn't it? God's church does not belong to elders. God's church is not the possession of its deacons. God's church belongs to God. And so those who are called to lead in the church are not called to possess the church. They are called to steward the church, to on behalf of God take very good care of that which is precious and holy to the one who is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And those who lead the church, therefore, must at all times keep in mind that the only reason they've been tasked with this important responsibility is because the true head of the church is Jesus, and Jesus has appointed them to that task. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This will be on the screen for you. This is an interesting passage of Scripture where The disciples have just made a profession of faith. This profession of faith is the rock upon which the church is established. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, not on Peter, but on the profession of faith, I will build, what's the word there? My church. Jesus makes it clear that the church belongs to who? To Jesus. On his church, he will build or on his rock he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and so some have pointed to this, this passage of Scripture and have said that you know, the Pope is the one who is supposed to be the cornerstone of the church. But who does Christ say the church belongs to in this passage of Scripture? He says that the church is his. Even going so far as to say that, that the church must be built upon the rock of the, the gospel, Jesus is referring to his own church it belongs to him and its health and protection will ultimately rest on his shoulders. It doesn't matter if you've been there your whole life. It's God's church. It doesn't matter if you planted the church. It's God's church. It doesn't matter if your calloused hands were the hands that poured the foundation of the building. If you wired every outlet and it is your hands that type in the code for the security system. If it is a church, whose church does it belong to? belongs to God. It is His church. Because the church does not belong to the elder or to the deacon, the elder or deacon cannot lead the church as he so (coughs) desires. He must look to the guidance of the one who owns the church. When we uh, gather together in the mornings on Sunday for pastors, prayer partners, this is why we pray every Sunday that God would grant the elders of this church to have wisdom, discernment, humility, and love. Because the task of leading you, God's people, is critical. And it's not one that we can do if we're going off of our own instinct, off our own experience, and we're trying to accomplish our own desires. We need the Lord's guidance and wisdom. We need Him to help us discern what is right and what is wrong. We need Him to give us the love that we need to care for you the way you deserve to be cared for as His redeemed people. And we need the humility to understand that we are not the most important part of this church that the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail even if we were to fail. I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5. This will be on the screen for you too. This passage of scripture has a lot to say about belonging to the church, specifically about how the church belongs to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How is the Apostle Paul telling the Ephesians that Jesus sees his church? He sees the church as his own bride, as his own precious Beloved Bride, to whom he has devoted himself to love forever. The church is not belonging to the elders and the deacons because the church is the bride of Jesus. It is more than a possession to God. The church is a precious object of his affection. He is responsible to provide for his bride. According to Second Corinthians 11, 2, Jesus grows jealous whenever anything or anyone threatens to steal her affections away from him. There is a great deal of language used that indicates Jesus views his church as a covenantal bride to whom he has promised himself. And that should affect the way that elders and deacons approach service to the church. When they serve the church, they are protecting the bride of Christ. They are providing for her needs. They are watching out for her purity so that she might be presented to the Lord God as holy and pure and righteous on the day when he returns for her. There is a heavy responsibility here because the church is therefore precious to Jesus and rightfully belongs to him as he purchased her with his own blood. Secondly, brothers and sisters, biblical leadership is influence. It is not just example. If a man desires to lead as an elder or a deacon, He does not just desire that position so that he can prove his worth to the others in his congregation. He desires that position so that he can help others attain to greater wisdom, maturity, and growth. Ephesians 4, speaking about the aims of the church, the Apostle Paul writes that those appointed to shepherd are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. That word all there is very important. That the elder and the deacon cannot just be concerned with the polity of the church or those who are at the top of the food chain or who govern well or or the most holy. No, their concern must be for all the church. That every member in the church is cared for and looked after and provided for. That we are continually hoping to preach the word of God with clarity to prepare you to live by the words that are contained in God's holy book. And so the biblical leader must have a heart for the sanctification that God desires for his people. He can't just simply watch his own life and make sure that he's being a good example and hope that others follow him. He's got to be involved directly with the lives of those that he leads and that he ministers to, that he might have a greater impact on the way that they live there have been several times when uh, the Lord was having me lead youth when I was responsible for a camp trip and we'd get all our leaders together and we'd get all the kids in the cars and they had their assignments and then we would head off up the mountain. And if I knew the way and if I was the lead car, what good would it do me if I sped off from the pack and I made record time and I got there first and I parked and I looked behind me and I never bothered to see if anyone was behind me. If anyone was staying with me, how many of you have tried to follow somebody who leads that way? That person might be able to pat themselves on the back and say, I got here without any wrong turns. I made record time. But those that he was entrusted to lead would be left in the dust. Elders and deacons cannot afford to be concerned only with their own hearts. They must be influential. They must lead in such a way that others are following accurately. That that sometimes that requires the person in the lead to go slower than they want to go to be more deliberate, and to make sure that those who are having a hard time coming along get the nourishment that they need and are guided in such a way that they are not forgotten or left behind. Biblical leadership is influence. It is not just example. And that means that an elder and deacon have got to pray face-to-face with those they are entrusted to serve. They need to be in the homes of the people that they lead. They need to be there, learning, helping them to to understand the things that they can do to grow greater in faith. We've got to learn our church members. We've got to figure out where they need to grow and what parts of their faith are lacking or, or where their doctrine needs help. Good leaders have got to incorporate all of God's scripture into the lives of their people so they might not just know it, but they will live it and apply it to their lives so they are not left wandering. And then finally, biblical leadership is only effective if one follows the true leader. There are many leaders who, due to neglect or because they desire to be creative and blaze a new trail or due to their infatuation with some worldly leader, some hip new pastor somewhere that's got a great new plan, there are many leaders in God's church who have failed to follow the true leader, Jesus Christ, the real head of the church and would therefore lead His people into corporate wanderings. Let us, as elders and deacons, continually ask ourselves, Who is that head shepherd? And am I following him? Because if I, as an elder, am not following my God, then how can I expect to lead you to him? If I am not devoted to God in prayer, how can I expect to challenge you to pray? If I am not seeking the word for wisdom and learning what I believe about the different parts of Scripture, then how can I expect you to be doing the same? Colossians 1, 17-18 says, And He, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So any leader who desires to lead you well must first set their sights and lock their targets on Christ so that they can follow the head of the church 1 Corinthians 11, 1, the Apostle Paul says, Imitate me as I also imitate Jesus. And that must be the heart of a true biblical leader. Jesus has always got to be seen as the one that we need to be following. And the pastors and the elders are not seen as the head of the church, but rather the under-shepherds that come alongside that major shepherd to help those who are lost find true guidance. And this applies to Christ's function as well as to his position. Look at John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. It says, I am the good shepherd. We saw in Jeremiah 23 examples of bad shepherding. But Jesus assures us and says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Because the leadership of Jesus is absolutely perfect, Jesus cannot lead us astray, He cannot take us in the wrong direction, He cannot overlook an important detail of leadership. He never takes a guess at things. Jesus' leadership is perfect. That means that any deviation from the pattern that he sets can only be and will always be a corruption of what is best. So if we want to be led by godly men, then we must make sure that those godly men are seeking God. That as they follow him, we can follow their example and also follow Christ. Stay tuned, church. There's a lot more to talk about in regards to elders and deacons. We'll probably be in this series for about six to eight weeks. So we pray that it will edify you and prepare us as we enter into this season where we are determined to add deacons uh, to those who serve here at First Family Church. Um, We are going to now transition to a time of celebrating the Lord's table. Uh, Before we have the elements um, that we use to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord's Table is one of two official sacraments that are offered in worship to the Lord God. Uh, he calls us to be baptized once we have put our faith in Him. And that is a public way that we identify ourselves with the work that Jesus Christ did to wash our sins away and to give us new life in Him. And the second sacrament, of course, is the, the Lord's Table. We also call it the Lord's Supper or Communion. And it is by this sacrament that we regularly turn our eyes back to the work that Jesus did on the cross at Calvary so that we might not lose track of the fact that God made us His by a great and mighty price. Because He was willing to give His perfect and spotless life, free of sin, He was willing to give that on the cross at Calvary and die in our place. We, as sinful people, have seen our sins washed away. We have been regenerated and made new. We have been given new life. And we have an eternity secured with us in heaven with God the Father, where we will dwell with Him the way he designed us to dwell with him. This ceremony is an adaptation of the traditional Passover meal uh, where the Israelites were reminded of God's great power to redeem them out of the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And of course, Christ has freed us from a more complete slavery, the slavery of sin. He has washed away our sin. He's also broken the chains that sin has over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have the power in Christ to reject temptation and to walk in holiness and in newness of life. Celebration of the Lord's table is like a compass to us. Life can be so up and so down, it can have so many distractions, that by having this Lord's table, it reminds us regularly, on a regular basis, that if it were not for the cross of Christ, we would have no place with God the Father. It is only by His work that we can be redeemed and we can know Him well. And so in a second, we're going to take a moment to examine our hearts, but first I want to encourage you. If you are not a member of First Family Church, but you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can still take of these elements. Um, You don't have to be a member here at this local church. When you trust in Jesus, you become a part of His universal church. If He is your one and only Savior, then you can enjoy these elements today. You don't have to be perfect to partake of these elements. This is not a litmus test to see who's been obeying the Lord this week. In fact, if you've been struggling with sin but you are repentant of it, then we encourage you to take this meal because it reminds you of where your strength comes from. It's not from your will. It's not from your dedication or commitment. It's from Christ Himself. He is the one that gives you power to overcome those struggles that you have been having. If you are not a believer today, we encourage you to be an observer. This is an ancient tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years. And so watch as the people of God partake of the bread and of the juice and realize that they represent something very meaningful and important to them, that the very presence of God is with us as we take these elements into ourselves. If you are struggling with sin today, but you call yourself a believer, but you're not repentant of your sin. If you're, if you're content to live within that sin, I would encourage you to not take of the elements today because we don't want to disrespect the work that the Lord did on the cross. But if you are in that state right now and the Lord is working in your heart and you can honestly repent to Him today, then please come and take of these elements so that they might minister to you in your time of need. In just a few moments we're going to uh, to describe the elements but first I want to give us a second to pray uh, thoughtfully reflectively. Um, you're going to bow your heads with me in just a moment we're all going to take some time to silently pray to our God. If you are a believer you don't necessarily need to be led in prayer. You should be able to talk to Him. He has made you His. He's your Father so speak to Him in these moments to come and and ask Him if He would reveal anything that is in you that needs to be confessed to Him. Thank Him for the work that He did for you to make you His, and consider uh, your place before Him and that it was only made possible through what Jesus did for us in giving His own life. Let's take about 60 seconds to pray silently, and then after that time, we're going to call some men forward to help us with the distribution of the elements.